Welcome back, listeners, to another Ag Watchers podcast. You've got myself, uh, Matt Dalglish, and Andrew Whitelaw, and we've got another guest in the uh, Ag Watchers studio, uh, Patrick Cool. Uh, Patrick's got a wears a few hats. We'll get to him in a second, but um, he's the SGAS manager for uh, Helene, and he's also the chairman of the Young Livestock Exporters Network. I hope I got that right, Patrick. Welcome to uh, Ag Watchers. Thank you. Good to be here. Excellent. So it's been a little while, Andrew, since we uh, had a bit of a chat in the last kind of live export specialist type person was Holly Ludeman we had on uh, a number of months back and we need to get her back. Well, I don't know if she came back because last time we spoke to her, she was about to go on uh, a live export vessel and we haven't heard from her since. So maybe she's, maybe she's still at sea. Yeah, well, we'll have to reach out and see how she's going. I'm sure she'll, she'll pop up somewhere. But so we had, we've got Patrick on. We, um, there was a, well, there's a few been a few um, developments actually just in the last um, couple of days. I noted on um, on the I think it was the Weekly Times that the Vietnamese government now is looking to enshrine um, higher standards of welfare in their in their kind of animal uh, production systems, and some of that I think is based around a lot of the good work that the live export sector has been doing, not just in Vietnam, Patrick, but other other countries as well, um, where. I guess the supply chain from Australia is and, and government requirement is that um, is that we've got, you know we're, we're kind of making our um, customers follow much improved guidelines. Um, did you want to give us a bit of a rundown? I guess initially maybe we'll start with just what your role is at, at Helene and how you got to there, and then then we'll move on maybe to the Young Live Exporters Network and what you do with them. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, so SCAS manager at Helene, so we mainly export live cattle out of the north of Australia into Southeast Asia, um, with the majority going into Indonesia and Vietnam. And so with the Australian regulations, once we deliver them into those markets, we're still responsible for their welfare, you know, during the time in the feedlot and then uh, through to point of slaughter at the abattoir. And there's some pretty stringent uh, requirements for that. And I suppose what we're going to talk about today on the welfare side, that what you've just mentioned in Vietnam, uh, the development there, that really shows the unusual uh, power of the SCAS system. It's a very unique um, way to go about introducing animal welfare into another country by, you know, pushing it alongside a commercial product. So we're sending them the cattle and we're saying, as a condition of you purchasing these cattle, you also have to meet Australian welfare standards. So really strange way to go about it. But the development in Vietnam, that's uh, a project of MLA, so running alongside Live Export as part of their Live Export program to support the industry. They've been lobbying at the government level for years over there to get that through, and it's now coming to fruition. And that shows, uh, you know, another part of why this is such a unique way to push animal welfare is that we get G to G, so we get government to government support for this, and we get you know a huge um, body like MLA with with you know a pretty big budget and a lot of resources, pushing it uh, at a policy level as well. So you know if you put yourself in the shoes of any animal advocacy group, if you had government support in the international market and and a huge um, organisation like MLA behind you, um, you know it's a dream come true for anyone trying to push uh, animal welfare standards over there. So, yeah, huge accomplishment there, both by the industry and MLA. Yeah, and you make that point too, um, 
Patrick, in your, I think you've got a blog there that you write about, and that's what um, I think Andrew caught, caught Andrew's eye a little while back. One of the, the points you make with regards to animal welfare activists that are in country there, um, that they just don't get the the access to the supply chain and the access into the abattoirs to, to really make any difference at all. So um, the way the SCAS model works is that it's coming you know, from the internal kind of players and, and therefore it carries a lot more weight and, and um, you know, is able to actually get some real traction and get some uh, good outcomes for, for increasing this, the global standard of animal welfare. Yeah, that's right. There's a couple of things there. One is that, uh, you know, we're dealing with, I'll talk about cattle because that's my wheelhouse. So cattle uh, welfare in Southeast Asia, it's not an area that, gets a lot of focus from animal advocacy groups that tend to uh, direct their dollars and their resources at uh, chickens and pigs because they're large population numbers and they seem to be more effective to have welfare programs aimed at them. So cattle sort of go under the radar and get, don't get a lot of focus. And there's, there's really a complete vacuum of animal ag- advocacy uh, activity for cattle in the region. So, you know, SCAS is in there sort of doing the work uh, that otherwise is not being done. Mm. A quick question for you then. So we, we effectively, as, as an industry, as a cattle live, live export industry, and I'm guessing the sheep live export industry have something similar to an extent, we're effectively exporting our welfare standards to what are effectively developing countries. And that is then we're effectively mandating an almost whole of supply chain um, welfare standard and, and chain of responsibility, I guess, would be the, 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 the proper, proper terminology. Is, I can't think of any other industry, either agricultural or non-agriculture, that says to the customers, you must use the product in this way. Like we don't have sort of the coal industry saying to uh, to to Chinese coal importers, you must use coal in this environmentally friendly way. So this is this is. You, you, I know you're doing a bit of studies. Uh, is that something that has been done anywhere else? Can can you see any examples of you know the the supplier mandating how the product's used? Yeah, I have looked into it a bit, Andrew. Um, the only one we can find is uranium, you know, <laughs> where you <laughs> pretty volatile product and you're sending inspectors in afterwards to make sure you're doing the right thing with it. And really, that's the only analogous one that um, I've been able to find. There may be other other examples, but it is, you know, it is very unique to push something on your customer. You're basically you're selling them a product and then saying, well, here's the conditions on how you use it. It's pretty unique and the only reason it works is because our customers in Southeast Asia really want our disease-free Australian livestock. Um, so it's only because we've got that, you know, a lot of commercial leverage. If they had other easy options to go to, uh, SCAS probably would be a disqualifier because it's, you know, there is a cost involved and logistically it can be challenging um, and it does constrain their their um, marketing options a little bit. So if they had another option, they'd probably go there. But Australia is so well positioned in the region and with our disease-free status that we've got enough commercial leverage to ask this of them, which is, you know, it's a big ask. In terms of, of things like whenever you're introducing anything new, there's always a bit of blowback 
and and was there any blowback from from customers in Southeast Asia when SCAS was was introduced? Or yeah, was it... it was a little bit before my time when it um, first got introduced, but I've I've heard the war, war stories, Andrew. <laughs> so it was there were challenges. You know, there's obviously cultural barriers that they had to get across. Um, and and it was a, it was a big change for some of them. It was different depending on the country. Vietnam is very open-minded and quick to adopt best practice. So in Vietnam, the the uh, progress, from what I understand, was very quick. Um, and but in Indonesia, it was as well from a necessity standpoint because it was coming off the back of the ban in 2011. So businesses wanted to get back up and going. Their businesses built on the supply of Australian livestock. And from what I understand, it was pretty amazing how rapid. Uh, they were able to implement it. So, and and of course, they had government to government support there. MLA doing a lot of lot of work. Mm. Oh, and now, correct me if I'm wrong, Patrick, but you've actually spent some time in country as part of your initial, I guess, career path pathway. What, where where was that? Was that Vietnam, Indonesia, or somewhere else? Yeah. So, um, based in Malaysia, and I did Malaysia, Vietnam, and Indonesia. So, spent okay. a fair bit of time in the supply chains there. Yeah, and I mean, you make the point with the Vietnamese situation there being quick to adopt best practice. I'm just reverting back to to that newspaper article that's just kind of come out recently around this whole um, enshrining, I guess, uh, parts of best practice that they've that effectively the industry's learnt from from the involvement with the Australian live ex sector. Um, they're looking at at kind of very much, um, say, so say a procedure like stunning, which in the past. Uh, you know, hasn't hasn't kind of been um, as widespread, you know, pre pre um, the SCAS kind of requirements, but but now it's becoming uh, much more commonplace, and and the uh, Vietnamese government, in, you know, kind of making the statement that that that's what they consider to be uh, best practice, a, a procedure like that. Um, do you feel that um, you know that that type of um, that type of growth in in those best practices is something that is going to continue to roll out across all of the countries we supply? Is it going to be as easy a process as what we've seen in Vietnam or do you think there's a lot more hurdles? No, I think uh, the adoption largely is done. Um, the Actually, Vietnam's a good example because the real challenge for SCAS for us there is within our SCAS supply chain, uh, you know, the, I don't know how many facilities are approved now. There might be 100 um, uh, could be a couple of hundred facilities up in Vietnam that are operating at an Australian standard level. So if our cattle are inside that supply chain, we don't have many issues um, generally. Um, the problem is that the domestic market has sort of is running at a different standard. So you've got these two different uh, levels of welfare. So our problem is always if an animal leaves our supply chain in the back in the domestic market getting uh, a different level of treatment. So um, the Vietnamese, you know, if they can raise that domestic level, so it's basically SCAS equivalent. And SCAS is based on OIE, and most of these countries have all, already accepted OIE standards for animal welfare. It's more just about uh, aligning their domestic uh, regulations with that. So it's sort of a, you know, um, all, all boats are rising scenario where every, most of these countries that we are exporting to, they are all improving their own animal welfare regulations and, and practices over time. And that, and generally they are getting closer and closer to, to SCAS. So I think it is, it's going to be a constant improvement. 
And um, Helene, I believe Helene's got a program which I think you might be responsible for, or at least have a, a fair degree of responsibility for, whereby you've got now in-country teams that are actually kind of locals that are employed to, to keep track of, of um, you know, what's going on on the ground there and making sure that, that, the, that the, the local system's understanding of, you know, or, or on top of those uh, procedures and, and helping to encourage that. Do you want to give us a bit of a rundown of how that program eventuated and what, what it actually is? Yeah, so that's fairly typical of uh, most live export companies to have an in-market representation. Um, and traditionally, that used to be we'd have Australian consultants up there. That's actually how I got into the job was I was one of those people in market. Um, and then I think the boss realised that locals speaking the local language could actually do the job better than, than I could. So I got recalled and, and we put on put on some locals and and uh, and they do they do a really amazing job. So as part of SCAS, you have to have oversight of your supply chain. Um, and there's sort of two ways you do it. One, one way is you have independent auditors uh, going through your supply chain. So every feedlot and abattoir is audited at least once a year, which, you know, if you compare that to other animal welfare initiatives and, and certification schemes around the world, that's actually um, probably uh, top of the line for audit frequency a lot of our facilities are also audited twice in a year so that's one part of it you've got a third party auditor providing some oversight but then also live exporters like us like to have boots on the ground so to speak um and and they're basically going around on a day-to-day basis you know we've got over 100 facilities in indonesia and pretty much every second day of the week i'd say they're in one of those facilities so we've got good coverage eyes on um, and and generally, you know, say in market like Indonesia, the animal welfare is well developed now. They're not picking up major issues. They're just keeping an eye on things, and every now and then they'll pick up small corrective actions, like you know, a broken gate or a, or a procedure that's not being done exactly the way it should be. Now, it sounds like a, a really you know kind of great program actually. Um, so changing tack slightly now, we'll move across because obviously you've got you wear multiple hats, and I I see this year. Um, you're an award recipient um, from uh, from the live export sector. I think it was that part of what you do broadly, or is that part of your role that you do as chairperson of Yellen? Or how did that how did that come about? Was that a presented by our friends at Nutrien? Was it really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I was pretty. Go. I was pretty happy to get that. Um, I should create you on vice chair of Wyland. Kari oh, okay. uh, um, got got the top job. Um, right. But yeah, I, I think that that. Uh, award that I got from ALEC, um, uh, which is sponsored by Nutrient. Um, yeah, that was oh, we're not sort allowed, of we're not allowed to say We're not allowed to say the Nutrient word too much in this podcast. Um, just... <laughs> <laughs> I've been plugging them everywhere I can. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, it was. I think it was partly that work um, through Wyland. So we've got that up and going, which is the young professional network um, for the livestock industry, uh, sorry, live export industry. So we, that was actually a bit of a surprise success. We we started that, you know, we're at a bar in Adelaide. There was two or three of us and we'd been hassling our bosses to give us some Excel training. And um, and uh, so we thought, oh, we'll do it as a group and we'll set up a little organisation so that a few others can partake. And uh, within a few months, we're up to 100 members and, and all of a sudden the committee <laughs> had to uh, work out a program and, and come up uh, with a bit more of a strategy. So it, you know, it sort of took off and and uh, has grown really quickly. 
Uh, so I think we're in our third year of operation now. Uh, and I've been the vice chair all the way through. We had um, a slightly different committee at the start. Um, John Cunnington, who's uh, the Whalier uh, chair here in WA, and he's um, on the ALEC committee. He helped us get it off the ground as a chair. So, yeah, that's been a huge success. So I think that um, uh, that made me look good, basically. But, yeah, also my, my work through Helene um, in the animal welfare space, because there is a lot of collaboration in the livestock export industry, um, you know, very regularly we're on the phone to other exporters and we've got collaborative projects for animal welfare training programs and things like that in market. Yep. So that, yeah, why, why uh, Gail, did you call it Yellen Network or yeah, just Yellen? Yellen, right? Yeah. So the Yellen Group, uh, it, it's basically now a way for um, kind of younger people within the live export space to to build capacity, is it, or to identify future leaders? Is that kind of what the remit is? Yeah, that's right, is to develop uh, the young people in the industry so that uh, they've got the skills, you know, it's about sustainability for the industry, so creating good young leaders. Uh, So, yeah, we run professional development workshops through the year, so Excel training and public speaking and negotiation tactics, things like that. Uh, we do a bit of that and, and also a huge component is the networking part of it because the live export industry is spread all over Australia, but it's not necessarily a huge cohort uh, of people working in it by number. So we are, we're, we're spread out a long way and it's, it can be a bit challenging to make the connections you need. And, you, you know, doing the role I do, you need connections in market as well, um, which can, you know, you're not going to just bump into those people um, as you might do in other industries. So, yeah, we provide that networking opportunity and that, from what I understand, has been pretty valuable to members. They get to meet a lot of the people that it's very useful to know. And you quite yeah. often do presentations and stuff as well? Yeah, so we've got a series. Um, because of COVID, we sort of moved to an online uh, webinar uh, series. So we've been doing that about monthly for I suppose the last twelve months coming up now, and uh, that's been really good. Been really happy with the seems, with seems, the um, turnout. Seem, it seems to me that the uh, the quality of presenters is declining. <laughs> yeah, well, we do have Matt this... as the next as the upcoming presenter, so no, that'll be good. So Matt Matt's presenting tomorrow, I think, isn't he? Is it tomorrow? Correct. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, that's right. And what what are you going to be talking yeah. about, Matt? Uh, it'd be all about me, Andrew, and uh, and the and the great role that we, you and I do together at TEM in in you know supporting the uh, broader agriculture sector, including live X space. I think. Yep. Oh, well. no, if anyone wants to listen, all they need is a Wildland membership. So open to anyone under forty in the, <clears throat> and they can have a pretty uh, loose connection to the live export industry. We we take most comers. Well, Matt's pretty loose anyway, so. <laughs> I'm I'm not under forty, unfortunately, so that would count me out. But um, that's all right. I think I'm going to be part of the, and I think you've done this as well. The uh, the livestock leaders course uh, that's run by the now the livestock collective. I'm pretty sure I've seen your your um, picture in one of those runs, Patrick, as well. So that's a, another type, you know, I, I guess a bit more broader than just the live export sector, but um, looking across the whole of the kind of livestock supply chain. Um, but yeah, they do a similar thing, and I think you've done that as well. That's that's quite a useful program too. I'm looking forward to when they run the next one in Victoria because I think I'm going to be on it. I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's a really good program. It's good to see initiatives like that uh, in the industry because I think 
Um, it might have been something that was lacking in the past. So, yeah, between the livestock collective um, and the wildland thing, um, the live ex export industry has got a lot of networking, a lot of opportunities for young people in developing leadership. And it's good that livestock collective, you know, they are, they're the whole livestock um, industry, not just live export. So it's good that we're linking them in together because they're all pretty closely related and reliant on each other. Were you part of the first run of that? Because I, I think they've done a few now around the country, and I believe what the first one was in WA, which were your base there. Or, um, was that were you in that first group? The the, the uh, what would you call it, the inaugural group? Yeah, I was the guinea pig, I think, uh, and it was it was a really good experience. It was hands on, so you know it's trying to give you the skills if you need to do a bit of advocacy for the industry. You know, a um, uh, someone wants to interview you, you're doing what we're doing today. So it was really practical. They sat us in a in a radio booth and put a microphone in front of us and and grilled us on you know some pretty tough questions on the industry. We did some you know writing, a lot of thinking about you know where you stand on on various issues in, in industry and learning how to articulate them. Um, so yeah, by the end of it, um, I definitely picked up a lot of skills and. The networking component of it was great as well because they had people from all over come and do that. So, so still that, talk to a lot of those people. Um, does that mean we've been too soft on you? <laughs> uh, we should be should we should be asking some more curly questions. So far, so good. Um, yeah, I haven't had to put it into practice yet. So I'm happy with when, that though. When uh, when they make the, um, the 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 movie of your career, Patrick, um, you know, and and uh, they they have to interview you at the end of it. You know, like they did with uh, what was that? Uh, Chopper Reed, when they have the original yeah. person and interviewed afterwards, you'll be able to put into practice. You'll probably get Eric Banner playing. You've got a bit of a, a young Eric Banner look about you, Patrick, so they might oh, reprise I, Eric Banner for the role. I'm not sure how that yeah, would work, Matt. I don't know how you get Eric Banner to play a young Patrick Cool when Eric Banner's about 25 years old. He's old, he's old now, yeah. Oh, they can, do, they can do amazing things with CGI these days, Andrew. They could even make you look good. You know, in, know. In, in the movie of your life with uh, featuring um, uh, Robert featuring... Carlyle. <laughs> I was thinking you and McGregor actually, but now that Robert Carlyle's probably better. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you can see it's uh, deteriorating rapidly here. But I think um, you know we we probably um, have covered off on the, on the key points we wanted to with you, Patrick. And um, I'm certainly looking forward to uh, to presenting to the to the Wyland team. And now that I know how to, uh, I don't want to embarrass myself tomorrow when I call it Yellen. Um, you know, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. But we, we really appreciate <laughs> Andrew and I appreciate you coming on and and giving us a bit more of a you know breakdown of how important that SCAS program has been, um, you know, and, and how it is, you know, we, we've said it a few times, um, you know, as part of our ad advocacy for not just agriculture, but the LiveX um, supply chain that uh, that some people don't realise how important it's been in, in, in kind of increasing global animal welfare standards um, and, and getting some impact with, with the animal activists probably can't really get much traction. So it's been good having you on. Um, appreciate you coming on and, and like I said, look forward to, uh, to presenting to the team tomorrow. Before you go, could you give me just a summary, just for, for listeners, on the value of SCAS? Uh, yep. So the, if you're looking at it from a large perspective, which is what I think uh, we should and how that's the way I think animal advocates should uh, look at it, is that it's raising the, the level of animal welfare 
in the region, not just for the Australian animals, but for the local animals as well. And that's where the real gain is. It's, uh, it's not just that we're guaranteeing good treatment of Australian cattle when they leave our shores. It's that all the local um, animals that also go through those same supply chains or, um, or uh, impacted by it, um, the animal welfare standard for them gets raised as well. You know, and it's a very powerful thing with government support, MLA support, and the commercial leverage that we've got. I think that sums up pretty well. I think we'll, oh, my we'll... training paid off. Yeah. So we'll we'll leave it there, Matt. And you you can do the outro and whatnot. Yeah, I don't often do the outro, so I've got to always think what I've got to say. It's one of those ones where you say, hopefully, listeners, you enjoyed this uh, little uh, podcast with Patrick. Um, Make sure to share it amongst your friends and colleagues uh, if you liked it. And if you didn't like it, feel free to share it with the people you don't like just so they can be equally as punished by us. Um, I think uh, is that pretty much uh, suitable to your standard, Andrew? I think we'll wrap it up there and I appreciate you listening in. Thanks for coming, Patrick. Yep, thanks for coming Thank on. You. See you later. Bye-bye.